You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank the worship team again because week after week, what you guys do is usher us into God's presence. And I think it was Elder Paul said, you guys do things that we can't do. We might be able to kind of clap and stuff, but you really do the ushering into his presence. So thank you for that. And thank you, Elder Paul, for all that you do. I think Pastor as well. And in that, we're going to be live streaming this last time. I want to thank a bunch of people, my own family that's going to be watching online, our church family. And I have friends, and I know that you have friends that are going to be watching as well. So I just wanted to say, start off with the spirit of thanksgiving for all that you guys do and all that is being done here. So in the way of getting started, I wanted to start with a scripture. And Psalm 91 verse 2 comes to mind, and it says, I will say to the Lord that you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And Psalm 95, verses 3 to 7, is similar. They say, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the sea and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So just a quick prayer. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that you're attentive to our needs, that you provide for our salvation, that you provide healing and direction for the lives that we should live. I ask that you bless all those who hear this message and that we may grow to be able to love and serve you effectively. In your name we pray, amen. So this is actually the third time that I'm like preaching the whole sermon here at this church. I've spoken before, the elders always do, but this is my third time doing the whole sermon. The first time was in August of 2019, and the sermon was entitled, Feed My Sheep. And it really talked about two main issues, being rest and peace. And we define rest as something that we do. What we do is we recover our strength, or we establish and get our health, and or we build on our energy. And as it relates to peace, we're really talking about a state of being. Not what you do, but who you are in terms of being free from disturbance and quiet and being able to experience tranquility and serenity. Then last year, in September of 2020, I spoke a second sermon. It was called called and equipped. And the main verse for that one came from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And what it did there was it spoke about our calling and our mission as disciples of Christ, right? So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, what it says that Jesus called his disciples together, and then he gave something to his disciples. He gave them power over and authority over all of the demons. And he also gave them the ability to cure diseases. And then after he gave them things, then he sent them out. And what did he send them out to do? Well, really just to do two things. 
He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So he therefore established that his disciples are supposed to be heralds, sharing what God says. And then he also sent them out to heal others. So it wasn't only about what he, the father, said. It was also about how we're supposed to relate to one another. And during the sermon, I posed five questions. The questions were, what is his will for us as his disciples? It's nice to know we're a disciple, so what are we supposed to be doing as his disciples? What's his will? Second question was, what does it take to accomplish our assignment of proclamation and healing? So we know we're disciples. What are we supposed to do? What does it take? The third question was, how do we accomplish our Christ-given mission? The fourth question was, what is it exactly that we're supposed to proclaim? Because it's nice to know I'm supposed to go out there and say something, but what exactly are we supposed to be saying when we're sharing? And then finally, the last question was, what can we do to promote this healing that Christ talked about? What can we do? And I made it a point to point out the fact that when we're talking about healing, it's not just the physical healing, because what we are is body, soul, and spirit. So what we should be doing is all that we can to promote healing for those three aspects of our personhood. So in preparing today's message, a verse kind of came to mind. It was Psalm 18, verse 30. And it says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord proves true. So today's sermon is entitled, The Word is Truth. The Word is Truth. And what we'll be doing today is taking a look at the word word, and we'll also be taking a look at truth and what that looks like. And then as a result, so what are we supposed to do with the word and with the truth? So it's always good whenever we're talking that we make sure we're all on the same page. Because if I'm using a word in one way and you're using it in another, then it's like I'm speaking English and you're speaking French. So we're not necessarily communicating. So what I tend to do, as does Frank, our basis, what we do sometimes is we kind of define the word and we try to give a definition. So as it relates to word being defined, it's a noun, and it is defined as a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing that is used with others, and sometimes it's used alone, to form a sentence. The sentence being the basic communication mechanism that we use. And if we look at the Greek definition, the word is known as logos. And in Greek, logos means either word or it means reason. Now, theologically speaking, when we talk about the word, I found this definition and it says, the word of God or principle of divine reason and creative order identified in the gospel of John with the second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus Christ. A lot of words, but what it's basically saying is the word is Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to look at the word grammatically, okay? Because we're not like in school, we're not in a class, but we're going to be using theological references to the word. Now, John 1, verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what John is basically saying that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer, he made all things. He literally stretched out the heavens that we get to observe, and he spread out the earth on which we live. Now, John also spoke about Christ being the word in Revelation at the end of the Bible, chapter 19, verses 11 through 14, and then again in verse 16. And it says there, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the enemies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. And then verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's pretty clear who John is talking about. Now, anytime we have an avocation or a vacation, something that we like to do, there's a couple of things that we need to do if we want to be good at it. You need to read up on it, and then you need to actually practice it. For our musicians, for the worship team, and I know that you're a teacher of music, so you actually do like a whole bunch of reading about music. But the bottom line is you have to practice and you have to read up on it. So if we want to be good disciples, one of the things that we need to do is read up on the scriptures. We need to read the Bible, see what God says about how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, etc. Unfortunately, many times the scriptures get misinterpreted, misinterpreted. And if I'm not reading the scriptures right, then I tend to make mistakes with my behavior in terms of what I wind up doing because I've read it wrong. And sometimes the mistakes can be really minor, but then other times they could wind up leading to sin. And sin always has consequences when we act the way that we're not supposed to. And sometimes what the misinterpreted does is kind of point the finger. Oh, I didn't do right. Oh, here's this negative consequence. Let me point to somebody whose fault it is. And very specifically, people sometimes point to God and they say things like, well, why did you let this happen to me, God? Or why did you do this? Because you have the power to be able to do something different. And if we're not pointing the finger up at God, we tend to point the finger to ourselves, to others. And we say things like, well, I did what I did because of what you did. Or I wouldn't have done this, but for the fact that you did X, Y, Z. So therefore, now that's the way I'm acting. It's the finger pointing thing because we're reading the scriptures wrong. Now, in Psalm 10, verses 3 through 4, and then again in 13, it says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, and instead you could say in the pride of his anger, but in the pride of his face of anger, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. And then verse 13 says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why does the wicked say that? I would say 
that the reason that they say that is because they don't really want to be accountable. Nobody wants to do something that they're not supposed to do, the consequences come, and then you want to deal with the consequences. I can't think of anybody, well, other than my wife who one time did it, but I can't think of anybody that says, oh, I know that I was bad, and what she did was said to her grandfather, here, granddaddy, I know I didn't do right, here's my belt, you can spank me. Now, I would, I would have been running. That's not necessarily the way I would have handled it. But the bottom line is, is we don't really want to deal with consequences when they come up. And at issue is, is, well, why are we acting the way that we're acting? Is it a matter of faith that we don't have faith either that God exists or that he exists and has an opinion? Or is it that we don't want to be obedient to his will? So I would encourage everyone to make sure that you read the scripture carefully and that when you read it, you're fully engaged. And what do I mean by that? I've done it. I've been guilty of it. But and, and I'm sure you know how it is. But try not to read at the last minute just before you go to bed when you're dead tired and you're looking and your eyeballs are like dancing around and whatnot. Try to make sure that then your body and your soul and your spirit are all actively engaged in what's going on in terms of your reading the scripture. You want to give him yourself physically as healthy as you can be. You want to give your soul in terms of your mind and your emotions and your will over to him because he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to teach us things. And you want to open your spirit, which is really the purest part of you where God dwells inside of you. You want to open yourself up to him and you want to do it without ha having any agendas or presuppositions. And I say that quickly because sometimes what we do is read the Bible to verify what we think we already know. So I'm not really reading it to hear what he has to say. I'm reading it because I'm going to verify what I know so I can go out and tell somebody all about it. And that's not what Christ wants. So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And we've already said that Jesus is the word incarnate, physically living amongst us. So in speaking to the Jews in John 8, verse 58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And also speaking to the Jews in John 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Now, interestingly, when he said that, everybody, the Jews at the time, got that he's saying, oh, I'm calling myself God. And that was a part of why they wanted to kill him. They didn't really like his message. But in John 14, verses 6 and 7, when he was speaking to Thomas and the disciples and answering some of their questions, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, but not only did he say things about himself, he also said, said things about the Bible, about our holy scriptures. In Luke 24, verse 44, when he was speaking in a post-resurrection experience with the disciples, he said, well, Luke 24 records, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be filled. Now, I'm the type of person where I like kind of the biggest statement possible, like, like the most summarizing statement as possible. 
and I was reading, doing, you know, doing my daily devotions and whatnot, and this verse came up a couple times. So I was like, oh, maybe he's trying to tell me something. So I took a look at it and I said, you know what, maybe what I'll do is I'll read the law of Moses and I'll read the prophets and I'll read the Psalms and let me see what they say. And it's not like I haven't read the Bible before a few times, but it's like uh, based on the way he's saying this, I must have missed something. Let me go and check. So I did my own study of the law, prophets and Psalms as it relates to references to Christ. And what I found was in the law. I found over 91 references to Christ, 91. In the prophets, and we're not distinguishing between the major and the minor prophets, they were all prophets. So in the prophets, I found over 172 references to Jesus. And in the Psalms, I found 652, actually more than 652. So if you do the math right quick, what I found in my little study was over 915 references to Christ in terms of his, own, in his incarnation, his crucifixion, and or his resurrection and return. And between me and you, I finished this study and I found at least another six. So it's like the Bible is replete with references to Christ. So what we can say is, well, if you want to do a definition of truth, Jesus is truth. He said, I am the way and the truth. The Bible over hundreds of years speaks to him very specifically. And when we're talking about truth, what we're really saying is a quality or a state of being true. Another definition is that which is in accord with fact or reality. So it's not like I just come up with this and I want to say it, the sky is green and that makes it green. No, that's not true. It's not in alignment with reality. And again, in John, it says, I am the way and the truth. So Jesus informs us and instructs us about the, speak, the scriptures which speak of him that he also fulfills. He teaches us that he's going to speak to us through the scriptures. And he also says that the word and scriptures are true. He's true. They fulfill him. They are true. But as I mentioned, a lot of times the scriptures get misinterpreted, though. Misinterpreted. And that could take on two forms. It can be innocently, I read it and the word, I missed the word not. So I thought that this was something that I was supposed to do. But then I, when I read it again later on, it said not. And I'm like, oh, I get it. This is not something that I'm supposed to do. But it can also be done intentionally, where people take the scripture and say, I know it says X, but I want to do Y. So I'm going to twist this word. I'm going to do violence to God's word to make it say what I want it to do, to make it say what I want it to say so I can do what I want to do. Right. So what Timothy says in 2 Timothy verse 2 Chapter 2, verse 15, is that what we need to do, what we must do, is rightly divide the word of truth. Don't mishandle it. Don't do with it what you want. Prayerfully sit with it and see what it says to you. And then we need to apply that word. We need to apply the truth in all of the situations that we face. And in doing it, it needs, the application needs to be done based in love and in wisdom. Because if you think about it in truth, one size doesn't really fit all. So I'm not saying that truth is situational, but what I'm saying is that the way we apply that truth needs to fit the situation that we're in. Another way to do it right quick, and I know Pastor Bill has used this, 
is that what you might say to a little child that does something wrong, if the adult does that same thing, then it's a different type of response. But no matter what the response is, it needs to be done in love and wisdom. So what we're enjoined to do is to not pervert or distort Christ's word and truth. His word in terms of the things that he spoke and the truth in terms of that which he is. And his intended message needs to not be messed with either because what he says is, I'm here, I want you to be reconciled. Us being reconciled to God and us being reconciled to each other. Now, unfortunately today, if you take a look around what's going on in some religious circles is instead of the truth and the word simply being taught, what you get sometimes is agendas. And those agendas can be based on politics, it could be based on cultural events. It could be based on economics. Sometimes it's based on racial lines, educational levels, and in terms of familial expectations. Think about what you see on the news right now. And all of these things, all of these agendas, sometimes come through in what the word of God and how his word is being used. But the truth really simply is you don't have to do too much with the truth. All you have to do is present it. Now, in undergraduate school, I was basically a double major. One major was literature and rhetoric, and the other major was African-American studies. And I loved the rhetoric, although I kind of debated, but I loved the rhetoric because it, what it was all about was, in short, in essence, it was about the dialectic process, the dialectic process. And what that is, it says, if this, then therefore. If ABC, then DEF normally follows. And most scientists are using that in the scientific method. That's what they use. It kind of comes from this. And in thinking about it, there was a gentleman. His name was Sir William of Ockham. Sir William of Ockham. And what he was was an English Franciscan friar who lived from 1287 to 1347, so this is like 1300s we're talking about. And he came up with a theory that's called Occam's Razor. Now, if everybody was in the room, I'd say, who knows about Occam's Razor? And I don't know if anybody would raise their hand, because in all honesty, I hadn't heard about it until the movie Contact came out. Remember Contact? And in there, he talked about Occam's Razor. I'm like, ooh, that sounds like a big thing, too. And I looked it up. I'm like, yeah, I like that. I like that. And what Occam's Razor says is basically a postulation that simplicity is the best thing. And he used his postulate, if you will, to define the divine and to explain miracles. And what his postulate says is basically that if all things are equal, the simplest explanation is probably the truth. The simplest explanation is probably the truth. And the other part of that was that he said that Explanations that don't have sufficient basis in reality aren't true if they don't harmonize with either reason or experience. So the simplest explanation is true, and if what I'm saying doesn't line up with reality, and if it doesn't line up with the Bible also, then it's not really true. So, in terms of what we're challenged to do today as Christ's disciples, 
Our job is to explain and to introduce others to Christ as truth incarnate. And while we're doing that, we need to explain that love for God and love for others is really the summation of the Bible. That's what it's all about. There's a lot of stories, there's some music, there's some poetry, but it's really all about us loving God and us loving each other. Now, in terms of religion, though, sometimes what we fail to do as we're out there trying to be disciples is take a look at what's going on in terms of what is it that's happening and why is it happening? When we're expressing love for God, love for others, and bringing the message, we need to be doing things like taking a look at who's doing what to whom, what is it that's being done, and why is that happening in terms of what's the motivation? I can do something that I'm not supposed to do innocently. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do it. But on the other hand, if I know I'm not supposed to do it, then you might want to respond to me a little bit differently in terms of how I'm handling myself. So Jesus taught us all about himself. He taught us about what we need to be doing. And he also taught about the Bible, the logos of God, the written word of God, the written word which he fulfills in terms of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And in this teaching that he does, he also brings forward the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he talks about himself. The scriptures is very clear about that as him being truth. And he also talks about the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Luke 24, chapter, 40, uh, chapter 49, sorry, chapter 24, verse 49, he said, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In John 15, verses 26 to 27, he said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because I have, you have been with me from the beginning. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, when he was with them at the Mount of Olivet before he ascended, Scripture says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The times and seasons that the Father has fixed. But you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Peter spoke about this as well in Acts 2 verses 32 and 33 when the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost. He said in response to some of the dialogue that was going on, well, this Jesus God raised up. And of what we all 
and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Finally, in Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, in terms of speaking about peace with God through faith, and hope does not put us to shame because God love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving, given to us. So, some closing thoughts. God's word and his logos is rich with instruction. It tells us how we are to live. And it tells us that Jesus embodies the revelation of God's love for us and how we are to deal with one another. Jesus teaches us that the truth is what we are supposed to do and we're supposed to live it as it relates to relating to God and relating to our fellow man. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40, and Leviticus 19, verses 13 to 18, it gives us almost a to-do list. These are the things that we should do if we want to live a godly life, if we want to be the type of person that Christ wants us to be as we relate to him and as we relate to others. And in Matthew, it gives us a one type of to-do list, things that we should do in terms of providing food and drink to others, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, delivering the needy and oppressed from the things that, are, that they are dealing with. It calls for us to be merciful. It says for us to do things that save lives and we're supposed to redeem souls. And in Leviticus, it's like the other side of that coin where it essentially talks about, so that's, these are things that you should do in Matthew, and these are some things that you should not do. Like, you should not oppress your neighbor. You should not deal falsely with others or lie. You should not curse others. You should not erect stumbling blocks in the lives of others, which makes their life more difficult. You should not commit or support injustice. And I have to put both, not commit it, but also not support it. Because if you know something is going on that's not right, you kind of stand there and don't do anything about it. In a way, you're kind of fostering that wrong that's being done. We are instructed to not defer to either the rich or the poor, because we know they all got their issues. We're not to slander others or stand against other people's lives. We're not supposed to hate our brothers. We're not supposed to take revenge or hold grudges. What we are supposed to do, Leviticus teaches us, is to reason truthfully and frankly with others, and we're supposed to love others as ourselves. Now, today is Valentine's Day, so I would be remiss if I didn't say something about love. Originally, when I was putting this together, I mean, what I'm going to share was in it, but I was like, oh, wait a minute, you can make this about Valentine's Day as well. So put that in there. So on Friday, when I was getting my notes together, the Lord said something to me. He, it's like he dropped it in my spirit, and I want to really share it with you. What he said to me was, well, son, the emotions that stir within you, what's going on inside of you, are manifestations of my love for you. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wow. So any love that I express for my wife, my kids, my friends, you guys, 
all of that is really, I can only do that because, or it's a manifestation of your love that you're pouring into me to others. And that kind of gave me a new perspective. So what I want to say is that you guys, everybody in here, everybody watching, we are dearly loved by God. We're loved by him on a level that we can't even really understand. So there's a few verses in the Bible that speak specifically to love, that command us to love. John 15 verse 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, that's one of those big kind of summarizing uh, verses. It really says that love for God is the first and great commandment, and the second one is just like it, loving your neighbors as yourself. That the whole Bible is all about love for God and love for each other. John 13, 35 says, by this you will know that you, mom, are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Romans, Paul says, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Peter writes in 1 Peter 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 John 4, 7 says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And Peter, again, in First uh, Peter verse 8 of chapter 4, says, Above all things, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God loves us and gave us his son for our reconciliation. And Jesus, who is the word and the truth, instructs us to love one another. So we can't do an altar call today, but if we could, it would be all about now saying, do you know him? And if you don't know him, come forward or raise your hand or do something. So in your house, it doesn't make a difference what you do. What I'm saying is in your mind and in your heart, if you know that you don't know him yet, give him your life. You will be better off for it because he is the way and the truth and the life. He's the author of our salvation He's the creator of all that is. He's the lover of your soul. And he's the one who was given to us that we could have eternal life. Jesus is the truth. And he will set you free from sin's penalty and death. And we mentioned a while ago, nobody really wants to deal with the consequences. So accept him today if you haven't already as your risen Lord and Savior. And if you know him, then give more of your life over to him so that he can express to you the love that he has for you. And you can dwell with him and have a life in increasing measure that loves God, that loves your fellow man, that enables you to proclaim the kingdom, which is our mission, and to heal others by promoting their well-being. So two scriptures to close with. One is John 8. Verses 31 and 32. And it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in me and my word abide in you and you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
nations and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So having said all of that, I close saying, I love you. God bless you. Strive to know what God's will for your life is by doing things like praying and reading and meditating and fasting. And do all that you can to express love for one another because Christ loves you. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.